Let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of Galatians. I heard a preacher say once when he came to see the grace message, he said, I already had all of the ingredients. I just didn't have the recipe. How many of you feel like that? I I grew up in a church where they taught the Sunday school lessons, learned all the Old Testament Bible stories, even learned about the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys, things like that. Had all the ingredients, but didn't have the recipe. Didn't know how to put it all together so that it made sense as a whole. And the Bible, of course, makes sense, but it doesn't make sense until you learn to rightly divide the word of truth. And you know, people sometimes react to that idea of rightly dividing because it sounds like you're tearing something apart. You're tearing the Bible apart. Well, no. What we're doing is we're understanding it in order, the way that God gave it to us, so that we can understand where we happen to be in the unfolding of God's plan. And a real major problem in Christendom is, even among those who know the Lord, love the Lord, they don't quite know where they are in God's program. And if you don't know where you are, it's going to be hard to figure out what to do, right? And so that's why it's so important. And what I want to talk about this evening is, why is the grace message so important? And I'm pretty sure I'm preaching to the choir here. But I have found in my ministry, and I don't know if it's because I've been at it for 40 years, and I follow great men, by the way. I followed uh, Brother Rick, and then, uh, you know, it was always, oh, Brother Rick did this, and Brother Rick did that. <laughs> and so we, we did that for eight years, then we moved, and we thought we'd get away from that. So I took over Paul Sadler's old church. Oh, boy. <laughs> Brother Paul didn't do it this way. <laughs> But that was, that was a real blessing, too. We had a great ministry there in Menominee Falls. But I want to talk about why is it so important that we stand for the grace message. And what I found after preaching the grace message for almost 40 years, I didn't learn it until I was about a year into my ministry, about half a year, actually. Uh, I'm finding that We talk about the first, the second, and the third, and the fourth generation grace believers. You ever use that terminology? And what I've found is sometimes the first generation, that's the people that come out of a denomination, or perhaps they just get saved, and they learn the grace message, and they're all excited about it, right? Then they have kids, and they teach it to their kids, and their kids are, yeah, this is what we believe. And then their kids get married, and they have kids, and so now we're down to the grandkids, and they go, yeah, this is what grandpa taught, right? You get to the fourth generation. And you know the danger I've seen? I've seen that people tend to fall away from the truth when it is not revisited and emphasized over and over and over again. And one of the frustrating things of of my ministry over the years has been, I want to get on to something new, right? And I remember when uh, we first went out to cope. I'll tell a story on, on that. Um... And I was going through a really basic message on the gospel. And I was kind of apologizing because I knew everybody knew the gospel, right? And uh, Ruth Laburn, after the message, in her very gracious way, she didn't have an ungracious bone in her body, 
She said, don't apologize for talking about these basic things. We love to hear it over and over again. <laughs> and I found that. It seems like those who really know the gospel, really know the grace message, don't get tired of hearing about it. So hopefully you won't get tired of hearing about this. So I want to talk about three main reasons why it is so important for us to emphasize and stand firmly for the grace message. And the first reason is for the sake of the gospel. Now you might say, wait a minute. I thought the gospel is what you have when you first get saved, and then you kind of leave that alone and you go on to better things, right? I mean, that's kind of the mentality that we often have. But we need to be careful not to neglect the gospel even when it comes to our spiritual growth. Galatians chapter 2. You know the story. The Apostle Paul had come to this region of Galatia. It was a totally pagan area. He brought the gospel of grace to these people. Many people evidently uh, trusted Christ and were taught the grace of God. So they didn't know anything else. They hadn't come, these people hadn't come out of Judaism like maybe the people at Corinth where the church was joined hard to a synagogue and there were people coming out of that synagogue. And so these Galatians didn't come out of that background. But after Paul would come into a city, establish the few believers or maybe a number of believers, and then he'd move on to the next field, who would come into town but the Judaizers? They even came all the way out of Jerusalem, up here to Galatia in Asia Minor, and they would try to bring these people now into the Jewish program and the law and the rituals and the ordinances. And as the Apostle Paul is writing to these people, he needs to explain to them what had happened at the Jerusalem Council several years before this. So he's recounting that in Galatians chapter 2. Verse 1, it says, Then fourteen years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Now, I personally believe that Galatians 2 and Acts 15, which records the Jerusalem Council, I believe it's the same meeting. Now, I know there are Bible scholars, good, good men, who believe that those were two separate events. And I've never, I've studied that, I've tried to figure it out, I can't figure it out. To me, the difference is this. In Acts, you have a historical record written by Dr. Luke, and it's recording the facts of this meeting and how it was called, why it was called from sort of man's perspective. And the reason it was called, from man's perspective, was that Paul was out there preaching the gospel of grace, not circumcising these Gentiles. And so the Judaizers back in Jerusalem were wondering, well, what do we do about this? Here, we're glad he's preaching Christ, but he's not bringing them into the covenant through circumcision and so forth. And so they needed to get together. But here we have the divine explanation of why this meeting was called, and that is in verse 2. Paul says, I went up by revelation. In other words, it wasn't just a few people deciding, hey, we got to get together and settle this matter. No, God sent Paul back up to Jerusalem to deal with this issue of whether circumcision was required for salvation. And, of course, in verse 
3, it says, But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And I believe that Paul brought Titus along as a living object lesson of salvation by grace without works. Because he knew what issue was going to come up at this meeting. Circumcision. And so when he brings Titus, he brings a man who was a Greek. He brings a man who had never been circumcised. And he's going to show them, here's a guy that got saved without it. All right? In verse 4, and that because of false brethren, or as Brother Stan points out, the word false there means they were lying. It doesn't necessarily mean they weren't saved, but they were lying. Brethren who unawares were brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour. Now that's an idiom, not for an hour. It's kind of like when we would say, not for a minute, right? We're, we're not given into this, this demand. And just think about this. He says, to whom we gave place, verse 5, by subjection. To whom? To, to these Judaizers, these false brethren who came in unaware. They snuck into the meeting, and they were the ones demanding not only that you must be circumcised to be saved, but they didn't want to continue the meeting of the Jerusalem council until Titus was circumcised. Just think about that. Imagine having a meeting. We call a council, Right? You're the attendees at this great church council. We're going to decide and determine this issue of circumcision. And somebody comes in. Oh, who's that? Haven't seen them before. And they stand up and they say, we're not going to proceed here until this Greek over here gets circumcised. Then we can continue our meeting. And what did Paul say? To whom we gave place by subjection. No, not for an hour, not for a minute. We didn't listen to that. We're not giving in to that. But I love the reason he gives for not giving in. You know, if we were to finish that statement, we would probably say something like, well, we didn't give in to that. And by the way, we have to throw in any ritual you want. Today, the ritual of choice is baptism, water baptism. So same principle, because are there churches, oh, there aren't churches today that teach that you have to be baptized to be saved, are there? Oh, my. The vast majority of Christendom teaches that, that you have to be water baptized to be saved. So what if someone came in and said, well, we can't continue the meeting until so-and-so gets water baptized. It'd be the same principle. Paul says, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour. But look at the reason he gives in verse 5. Halfway through the verse, that the truth of, and we would probably say that the truth of the grace message would continue. But that's not what he says. He says that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. What if Paul had given in at that meeting and said, well, you know, Titus is saved already. Circumcision isn't going to hurt him any. I mean, it'll hurt physically, but it's not going to separate him from God, right? I'm sorry, that didn't sound very good. But isn't that the argument we hear for, for uh, baptismal regenerationist friends? Or not those, they demand it, but for our friends that say, well, it's not required for salvation, but we think you should do it anyway. It's not going to hurt anybody. 
But Paul says we didn't give place, we could not give place for the sake of the gospel, that the gospel might continue. In, in my, my few years of traveling, you know, and we, we have a church back home. You might say, well, where, how, who's preaching at home? Well, um, our son-in-law went through our three-year Bible Institute, and now he is our preacher at home. And uh, he does almost everything. It's wonderful. <laughs> I love it. In fact, two weeks out of the month, we go up to Sioux Falls and preach at the Grace Church up there. So um, that the truth of the gospel, and what I have found in traveling, and particularly in the south, are you guys considered south or are you still north? I don't want to get us another south. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of Christians that kind of gravitate between certain churches. And two of the big names in the south are what? Southern Baptist and Church of Christ. Now, to my knowledge, Southern Baptist uh, doesn't demand baptism for salvation. But they do for membership. Church of Christ teaches that you need to be water baptized to be saved. And we found out there's a lot of people that kind of move around these two circles. And so they're going to a church for a while that says you need to be baptized to be saved. Then all of a sudden they go over here to this other church that doesn't actually teach that but still demands baptism for membership. I'm convinced that people pretty soon start to get those two things confused in their minds. And there are a lot of people who we would think, oh, they're not depending on their water baptism. And yet in their mind, they've been taught that enough, that it's still in there. I think that I need to do this to be saved. Now, if you come at you know, cold turkey as an unbeliever, and you think you probably need to be water baptized to be saved... And so you say, okay, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to believe on Christ. Is that the gospel? What is the gospel, by the way? 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose again the third day, believe the gospel and be saved, right? By in whom you believe. Does the gospel include any ceremonies? No. What happens if we add a ceremony as a requirement to the gospel? Well, Paul touches on it here in Galatians, doesn't he? He says, if you be circumcised, and he's talking in the context of demanding circumcision for salvation, you have made the grace of God of none effect. You've just nullified the gospel. You've nullified the gospel. The gospel is salvation by grace through faith without the deeds of the law. And that's why, in verse 5, Paul says, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. This, was, this meeting took place in the infancy of the body of Christ. And if Paul had given in on that point then, there'd be no hope because it would have become established in their minds and their thinking. Now, even though he did that, we're still dealing with that 2,000 years later, aren't we? We're still dealing with this problem of people trying to mix something with the gospel. And that's why I say the first reason that we need to stand firmly for the grace message is for the sake of the gospel so that it does not come across confusing to those who hear it. 
Before we get on to the second point, I just want to illustrate something for you. Go back to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, the first full recorded message of the Apostle Paul. We know he was out ministering before this as Saul of Tarsus, but now he's Paul. And I find him laying out the gospel as clearly here as it gets. Again, right at the outset of his Gentile ministry. Look at it in verse 28. And we're, we're quite a ways through his sermon here, but he says in verse 28, And though they found no cause of death in him, referring to Christ, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. All right? First element of the gospel, Christ died for our sins. Verse 29, And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him and uh, down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. Second aspect of the gospel, and he was buried. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. Third aspect of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, raised again. Death, burial, resurrection. You have it right there in Paul's first recorded sermon. But then when he brings the point home, look what he says in verse 38 and 39. Be it known therefore unto you, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. So what has he done up to this point? He has laid out the gospel. They took him down, they, they, uh, they put him on the tree. He was slain. They took him down, laid him in a sepulcher, burial. God raised him from the dead. Resurrection. Be it known therefore unto you, verse 38, through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And then verse 39, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. So in a nutshell, what has Paul preached? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as the basis of our forgiveness, the requirement of faith without the works of the law. That's it. There's the gospel. And I believe when we preach the gospel, that's what we need to tell people. And best of all is to use scripture. (laughs) <laughs> the, the power of God is in the gospel. I don't like to get off this first point because I think we've, I think we've uh, ignored and, and haven't been as careful as we ought when it comes to understanding and properly presenting the gospel. The gospel is the key, obviously, to the Christian life. You don't, you don't get in without believing the gospel. And so we need to get it right. Sometimes I think people think, oh, you're being a little too picky, it'll be a little too particular. Well, if we can find from Scripture how people presented the gospel, how the Apostle Paul presented the gospel, did it work for him? Yeah. That's the way we should do it. Present it the way. And, and I say that because I've heard so many messages, good, in, well-intentioned messages, um, ask Jesus to come in your heart. What does that mean? Believe the gospel. Second reason that we need to stand firm for the grace message is because it is our commission. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It is our commission. 
Now, one of the criticisms of the grace movement is, oh, you're always telling us what we don't have or what we shouldn't do or what we're not. We don't preach the Great Commission, right? I mean, that's, that's the marching orders for the church. I mean, I grew up in the church where you just, you heard that almost every week. Here's Christ's last words to the church. Go ye therefore, baptizing them. That is, that's the gospel in many people's minds. And the grace movement comes along and says, no, no, that's not our commission. That was the commission to the 12. That's the kingdom commission. But what we don't do many times is move on to tell people what is our commission. We're good at telling them what our commission is not, but what is our commission? And our commission, I believe, can be boiled down to two points. Paul said it in 1 Timothy, that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's, that's our job, to see that all men are saved and to see that they come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, what does that entail? It entails preaching the gospel, and it entails sharing the grace message. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. You almost even have the word commission right in that verse, don't you? Committed unto us. <laughs> that's our commission, the word of reconciliation. Now, I would say that's the gospel, the word that Christ has already paid the price of our sin, and that we come to him without works. Look at verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. The essence of our commission is, Christ has already done the work of reconciliation, now you be reconciled to him. He's, he's set his terms out. His terms for salvation are, you're not good enough. But Christ was. He perfectly accomplished what the Father told him to do. And the Father was satisfied and pleased with his work. Uh, I referred to Paul Sadler. I, I used to love how he would present the gospel. And he used to say this. Being saved isn't a matter of whether we accept what Christ did. Now, that goes contrary to what we, you know, we tell people, accept Christ, right? The real issue is, did God accept what Christ did? Now, what's our part in this? We must believe that God accepted what Christ did. And Brother Saturday used to say, you know, it's not really whether it's okay with us that Christ died for our sins. <laughs> the issue, was it okay with the Father? Was he pleased? And, of course, he was. He was well-pleased and satisfied that his son had fully accomplished the work of salvation. So for our part, it's just a matter of whether we believe that or not. Do you believe God was satisfied? Verse 21, and I just love this, because it really tells us what takes place 
because of Christ's reconciling work on the cross. It says in verse 21, For he hath made him, that he would be the Father, hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Our commission is the word of reconciliation. We need to be telling people what Christ accomplished on the cross, that it fully satisfied the Father, and that we now can be reconciled to him by faith alone. And what happens when we put our trust in Christ? Christ was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you believe that? You know, that's, that's an amazing thing to affirm. That because of what Christ did, I believe the gospel. I believe that what he did satisfied the Father. Because of that, God tells me that I am given the very righteousness of God. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around, isn't it? Because we look at our daily walk, and guess what? It doesn't always look so righteous. But that's where we need to walk by what, again? Faith, not by sight. There's the essence of what it means to believe the gospel. And Paul explains it like no one else could because he's writing by inspiration. He's giving us God's viewpoint on these things. But another part of our commission, that all men be saved and come to knowledge of the truth, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Now, if you're, if you're a grace believer, you know Ephesians chapter 3, right? Ephesians chapter 3 is considered by some to be the apex of the grace message. It's like you can take everything Paul wrote that God revealed to him about this present dispensation of grace and you can just boil it down, and when you get it all summarized, you end it up at Ephesians chapter 3, right? I mean, that's, that's Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to your word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. By the way, I'll stop there. That's what it means when he says it was a mystery. It was a secret. It wasn't revealed previous to when Paul got it. And then he says in verse 4 or 5, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And by the way, those holy apostles and prophets are not the 12 apostles in the Old Testament prophets. It's talking about the dispensation of grace, apostles and prophets. And someone shared this with me many years ago, and I, as far as I can tell, it's true. Search it out for yourself. But when God's talking about the 12 apostles and the Old Testament prophets, he calls them the prophets and apostles. Because who came first in Israel's program, apostles or prophets? Prophets. Who comes first in the grace program? First Corinthians, God gave some first apostles, then prophets. Okay, And so when he says here, apostles and prophets, he's talking about other guys in Paul's day besides the 12, not talking about them, 
By the way, they didn't learn it from the Spirit. You know where the 12 apostles learned, the ones that did learn it? You know where they learned it? From Paul. <laughs> At the Jerusalem Council. When he preached that gospel that he preached among the Gentiles. Paul couldn't be everywhere at once. He'd be in one city. There's a church established over here from a previous journey. And God's revealing some new thing to Paul. Guess what God would do? He'd reveal it to a prophet or an apostle over here. Read 1 Corinthians 14. If an apostle receives something, he can stand up by course, by order, and, he can, and if something's revealed to someone that stands by, then the first one is to sit down, the next one's get up. And God was still giving revelations. He was giving the mystery to other apostles and prophets throughout the churches. Because Paul couldn't be everywhere at once. Verse 6. That. Purpose. Purpose clause. That. The Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Go back in the Old Testament. Go to the four gospels. Where do you ever read of Jews and Gentiles coming together in one body? It's, it's not spoken of anywhere but Paul's epistles. Why? Because the body of Christ is unique to this dispensation. And without naming any names, there are some even in the grace movement that seem to be moving back to the idea that the body of Christ was really there all along. God just didn't talk about it until Paul. Well, the problem with that view is back in Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, I believe that's what Paul's referring to when he says in chapter 3, as I wrote a four and a few words, the mystery. He's talking about what he just told him in chapter 2. And what did he tell him in chapter 2? Verse, six, uh, verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one, what kind of man? New man. The body of Christ, and we know it's the body of Christ because verse 16 says, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body. The body of Christ is a new man. It's not the old program with Gentiles added to it. It's a new creation. That's the church, the body of Christ. Okay, so now you, you, do, you already knew that, but I'm just telling you because it's kind of coming back. Just pay attention, all right? Pay attention. And I could tell you a lot more, too, <laughs> that you may not be aware of. But when you start gravitating to this idea that the body of Christ is, has been there all along and it's just starting to be spoken of by Paul, then it messes up your eschatology too. And so there is a move, uh, even among some who call themselves grace believers, towards what has been variously called a mid-tribulation rapture or a pre-wrath rapture position. Uh, to the extent that uh, I was actually asked to address that when we go to one of our conferences we're heading out to. Um, and when you don't recognize the distinctiveness of the Pauline revelation and the body of Christ, then you get all messed up with eschatology and, and many other subjects. So, when we get down to verse uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, we get to the second part of our commission. We are, we are to make to see that all men are saved and to see something else, that they come to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 8, Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all 
men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. That is part of our commission. And that's the second reason why we must stand firm for the message of grace as revealed to the Apostle Paul. Because this is our commission. This is our job. If we're not sharing the gospel and if we're not sharing the mystery, the fellowship of the mystery, we're not doing our commission. And when we do our commission, an amazing thing happens. Verse 10, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. God is even using us as believers in this dispensation of grace to teach the angels about his grace. There are thi- and, and you know, I don't think he's talking about our theology here so much. Obviously, it involves that. But I believe he's talking about how we take our theology and then translate it into our lives. And what he's showing the angels is an amazing thing. For one thing, do angels have a plan of salvation? Did God have a plan of salvation for angels? No, Hebrews tells us he took not on the nature of angels. God, Christ didn't die for angels. I don't know what plan God had before when the angels were created and some of them fell and some didn't, there, there must have been some way he told them, look, if you guys leave, you're out, okay? And some chose not to leave. And they are now called elect. And they're, so they're locked into whatever God did. Was there a probationary period? I don't know how he did it. But once an angel fell, that was it. And so for an angel to observe the church, the body of Christ, is for them to observe Fallen creatures who have been redeemed. (laughs) Unheard of. Unthinkable to the mind of an angel. And that's all part of the manifold wisdom of God. We're demonstrating it. And then add to that the mystery itself that wasn't revealed uh, in previous ages. And our job is to demonstrate that to all men and to angels. We have a big job. All right. I don't know how long you go here. I'm, I'm going to, next Wednesday, Lord willing, I'm going to be preaching in Tupelo, Mississippi. I didn't even know there was a Grace Church there, and I looked up on the little websites, you know, that talk about Grace Ministries and called the preacher up, and his name's John Smith. And the reason we knew he was there is because they order a bunch of books from us. We'd never heard of them before, and so I thought, well, they might be open to having us come. And I said, can we come preach there? He goes, yeah, we'd love to have you. And if you get rained out with the Hurricane, come back Sunday and preach again. And he says, we'll give you two hours if you want. (laughs) I don't think you're giving me two hours. He said, we usually go just an hour, but if you want to keep going, you just keep going. (laughs) Well, I'm quitting at 7.30, so I hope that's okay. All right. The third reason why we must stand firm for the grace message is because of the present apostasy. Let's go to First and Second Timothy. Here, here's the closest thing you find in Paul's epistles to a prophecy, right? Going to tell us what's going to happen in the latter times. 
First Timothy chapter 4, in verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, and so forth. The latter times. Now we won't take the time to explain, but I'm sure you know. When Paul talks about the latter times, he's not talking about Israel's last days. He's talking about this dispensation. There are last days for this age, and then there are last days for Israel. They're not the same thing. And the interesting thing when Paul talks, and let's go over to 2 Timothy as well. He uses similar language. 2 Timothy chapter 3 Verse 1, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, and so forth. What do most modern prophecy preachers point to as evidence that it's the last days? Hmm? Israel, right? Uh, The events in the Middle East. I mean, how many times in my short lifetime, I turned 62 last month, In my short lifetime, I can't tell you how many times I've heard a prophecy preacher say, well, this is it this time. This happened over, well, there's a war over in Israel, that's it. There's a war in the Middle East. This is the sign of the last days. This is it this time. Oh, that wasn't it. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. When Christ was asked by his disciples, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What did he point to? Well, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and diverse places. He goes through all this list. And then he even says, but the end is not yet. Even that wasn't the sign. And he says, here's the sign of my coming. As the lightning comes out of the east, shines to the... Is that east? Which way is east? Whatever. That way. And shines to the west, so also shall be the coming of the Son of Man. That's the ultimate sign of his coming. The second coming. When right after, at the end of the tribulation, what does God do? The sun is dark and the moon turns to blood. The stars fall from heaven. It gets dark. God shuts the lights out in the universe at the end of the tribulation period. And then Christ appears as a flash of lightning. Nobody's going to miss that. It's going to be very obvious, right? The sign of his coming. So when Christ talked about the end times, he pointed to a lot of physical things that were going on. He talked about the visible things that were going on. Paul doesn't do that. You know what he points to when he talks about the last days of this dispensation? He talks about the hearts of men. He talks about what's going on inside of people. And you can't, you can't read through the list he gives without thinking, we've got to be there. Now, I will say this. When the Apostle Paul wrote these things, he knew he was about to die. He didn't know that the dispensation of grace would go on for 2,000 years. I think he believed it's going to happen like really shortly. But it didn't. But the things that were happening then are still happening today. In other words, the entire dispensation of grace is latter times in Paul's mind. Because it's what what it is. This dispensation is an interruption of parentheses in Israel's last days. Did you know that? The last days of Israel started back at Pentecost. That's what Peter said. This is that spoken of by the prophet Joel. But God interrupted that, revealed his grace, 
And when grace is over, guess what? God picks up with Israel's last days again. So the whole dispensation of grace has taken place within a break of Israel's last days. 2 Timothy is a, a little discouraging from this standpoint. Chapter 1, verse 15. This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me. Can you believe that? Asia. I mean, that's where uh, the church at Ephesus was. Church at Colossae. When Paul was there for two years at Ephesus, it says all Asia heard the word. I mean, these were <laughs> heady times, weren't they, for the ministry? This, this, was, this was expansion, growth of the grace message. And now, a few short years later, Paul said, all those in Asia turned away and you know sadly to this day you go to Asia there's no grace churches over there eh, I think there might be a few grace believers here and there um, he's warning that people are going to turn away And lately I've been saying something. I don't want you to get discouraged because I'm, I'm very encouraged and a lot of it has to do with, uh, with writing and, and so forth. It's, there's hardly, I, got, I got a phone call on our way down here today from a lady in Arizona who is just, <laughs> she came out of Seventh-day Adventism and she is just, her, her, her name is White, is her last name. If you know Seventh-day Adventism, that was the White, Ellen G. White was the, but no relation, no relation to her. But um, her testimony, I mean, uh, it's just so amazing. She came to the grace message because she got so discouraged at trying to keep the law in her former church that she just gave up on it. And she said, I don't know why, but I just decided I'm just going to start reading Paul's epistles. <laughs> and she said, I found out that we have freedom. <laughs> We're not under the law. We're not under all these ordinances and rituals and performance. And uh, it's a long story, but she, oh, I'm almost out of time. And she, uh, she called just today and wanted to share that she'd shared the grace message with uh, a friend's son-in-law in another state, and he was really coming to see it, and he came and visited, and she said tears were streaming down his face that he finally can understand the Bible. <laughs> That's encouraging. I love that. And yet, there are those who are turning away for various reasons. I found in my experience, and we tell our young people this all the time, marry a grace believer. We tell them that all the time. And I found that what's turning young people away from the grace message isn't that they're turning away from the Lord so much as they're being led away from the truth because the person they met won't accept the grace message. They want to continue with their rituals and their whatever. That's what's turning many away or drawing many away. And that's, that's sad to see. That's sad to see. But he said it's going to happen. And I have lately, I've been making this statement. It's offended some people. 
but just based on the literal meaning of the word of God. When he says in 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, then in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. The word depart is from that word apostasia. What's our English word we get from that? Apostasy. <laughs> that's, a, that's a transliteration of the word. Apostasy. And you know, when we think of apostasy, we often think of, oh, it's, that's those liberal churches that don't believe in the deity of Christ and that stuff. Well, you know, at one time that was apostasy, but there are churches that, I don't know why they even call themselves churches anymore, that, that don't believe those things. And a lot of the people in them never believed the gospel. They never believed the truth. That's not apostasy. Apostasy is when you know the truth and you depart from it. True apostasy today is when grace believers leave the message. That's apostasy. Departing. And it, it just struck to the very heart of, of the apostle. And that's why he has such strong words for Timothy as he writes what I call his last will and testament, Second Timothy. And he reminds Timothy in chapter 1, verse 13, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, That good thing which was committed unto thee keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. And what do you do with that message? Chapter 2, verse 2, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And I just so appreciate what Brother Rick does and others now with the seminary, but that's the principle. And, and here's another hard lesson I've had to learn. And that is, you need to find some faithful men. Someone who's going to take that message. There's nothing so disheartening as teaching these truths to someone and then they turn out not to be. And you can't always predict who's going to be faithful and who's not. But because our time is short, he's saying find the ones who will be faithful. Devote your life to them. Pour your ministry out and, and develop those faithful few who will be able to teach others also. That's what you do with that message. Oh, but they don't want to hear it. Chapter 4 and verse one, uh, 2. Preach the word. Be instant. In season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and they shall, be turned, shall turn away their ears from the truth. And shall be turned unto fables. And here's just another little lesson I learned from uh, an old elder at one of my churches. And that is in verse 5. You know, a lot of times in our ministries, we're trying to, to win the denominational people over. Yeah, I think they need to know the grace message. But look what he tells Timothy. Watch thou, verse 5, in all things endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Go out and win some new ones. There's nothing like a new believer that comes right into the grace message. <laughs> How exciting. Verse, uh, chapter 4, Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil and the Lord reward him. 
according to his works, of whom be thou where also. For he hath greatly withstood our words at my first answer. No man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge. We need to stand for the grace message for the sake of the gospel, because it's our commission and because of the present apostasy. And when all else fails, look at verse 17, notwithstanding the Lord stood with me. You know, Paul never gave up, did he? <laughs> to the very end, and I, just, I actually shared this Sunday at our church, verse 13, the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee and the books, but especially the parchments. Here's the man who personally penned half the New Testament. And he says, bring those parchments. That's the word of God. Here, here at the, the end of his life, he sees the, he sees the end. He, he, the, the day of my departure is at hand. Bring me God's word. Is that the hunger and thirst that you have for the truth? That's what God wants to develop in us. And this is why we must stand firm for the truth. Let's pray. Father.